What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. And I'd like to thank everybody for supporting the show and coming out and listening and sharing with friends and family. All I ask is that if you really do enjoy the show, please give it a five-star rating wherever you get your podcast, whether that's Spotify, Apple, what have you, or send me boosts or something like that. If you're listening on Podcasting 2.0 apps, that is greatly appreciated. And subscribe. Let it uh, go straight to your feed, straight to your podcast player. All that is greatly, greatly appreciated. And also check out my YouTube channel for more content as well. That's at Green Candle on YouTube, also linked in the show notes here as well. But I've got a very special guest. I've got Michael Guyad, lead lag report on Twitter. You've definitely heard him in some spaces. He's hosts a ton during the week. I think in this prior week, he's hosting up to 15 hours, and he actually had to jump a little bit early from this interview because of it. But we still got in a great discussion on contrarian views, the melt-up, all the things that he kind of talks about, and he's just a brilliant mind that's been in this space for quite some time, so be sure to tune in for this banger of an episode. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. It should never be taken as financial advice. This is strictly the opinion of myself and Michael and should not, not, not be taken as financial advice. It's used for uh, entertainment purposes only. And on that note, ladies and gents, let's get into the show. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. And for those listening on Podcasting 2.0 apps, streaming me stats, I really do appreciate it. And if you're listening, wherever you get podcasts, please subscribe and uh, like, leave a five-star review, and maybe I'll, I'll read it out at some of the future episodes. But I've got a very special guest in the waiting room here. I got Michael Guyad. So if, you, if you've been around FinTwint, you've heard his spaces, you've heard him all over the place. So Michael, how are you doing today? I am uh, as good as your podcast is, which is exquisite. I appreciate that. A man of uh, some great catchphrases on Twitter. So if, uh, you know, those who are in the audience that are listening and maybe haven't heard of you before or haven't uh, seen you on any of these spaces or anything like that, why don't you give us a brief background uh, of yourself? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I was born on Planet Krypton. No. Um, so a couple things. Um, I kind of grew up in the business. Uh, I've talked about this before, but... Um, my father worked with a guy named Bob Farrell in the late 80s, who was this kind of legendary technician when it came to markets. If you look up Farrell's 10 rules, they're as applicable today to markets as probably ever before. Uh, saw my father build a business, build a hedge fund, joined the family business in 04. Uh, 08 happened, family business closed. Uh, my father passed away. I had to reset my career. Uh, started doing a lot of systems testing, back testing, strategy development. Uh, ended up joining joining an RIA and then creating a couple of strategies with that RIA. That led me to launching a mutual fund. That led me to putting out five different research studies that won different awards. That led me to putting out uh, the lead lag report. And here I am today, still as a, in quote, struggling entrepreneur, uh, dealing with uh, the same problem we're all dealing with, which is the unknowable tomorrow and cycles, which nobody can control. Um but thankfully, you know, I've, I've built a nice, solid audience over the years that I think understands the analytical framework that I bring to the table and hopefully appreciate the integrity that I try to bring with all these kind of conversations. 
Yeah, exactly. And you, you talked about the audience building. So I want to kind of get into that right away as, you know, a lot of people, it's kind of been almost like a new fad maybe on Twitter, but, you know, you have your Twitter account that you created in 2010. So you've been, you know, tweeting and putting things out, out there for quite some time. And uh, as of late, you know, you've had a little bit of, of clashback, maybe because of the size of your audience or just because, you know, people always want to be, you know, no matter what you do, when you put something out there, somebody wants to be on the opposite side of you. So, you know, when it comes to these discussions and kind of putting yourself out there, maybe a little bit more than, you know, than, than a few others, you know, what, what has been kind of the response and, uh, you know, what have you kind of noticed as maybe a shift over the past like few years as you're, as you've been putting out content? Yeah, so well, there's a couple things. So one is people cannot seemingly distinguish between me as an analyst, as a macro thinker, and me as a portfolio manager of rules-based strategies, funds, my mutual fund, my ETFs. They can't distinguish between the two, even though the funds are rules-based, meaning that if I died tomorrow, the funds would still run the exact same way they're run because it has nothing to do with my discretionary thinking. A lot of my analysis is predicated on signals that go into the strategies that I'm known for, which relate to these research papers that won these different awards. But, you know, to your point, I think, as I keep saying, people tend to look at the right of the equal sign and think that's how you judge anybody or any approach, whereas, you know, pros look to the left to try to understand what goes into the conclusion. Um, it is a remarkable phenomenon. I, and I know this is not like a new thing. I, I used to be one of MarketWatch.com's top writers uh, for a few years. And... I would see whenever I would do a major article that got a lot of page views that was contrarian to popular thinking at that time, I'd get the same kind of uh, copy, meaning wording, right, as I get on Twitter when I say something which is against the grain. And oftentimes that wording is insulting, right? And I, I keep using that line, you know you're right when the counter argument is insult. This is not a new phenomenon. I've seen this for many, many years. I haven't gotten quite a few of the kind of big arguments right for the way markets would play out. I don't know at the core what causes that, right? It's not like um, it's not like those that are arguing with me and insulting me are doing it with any understanding of the approach. I think it's more just either people are angry in general, right? Or they're in the counter position, in which case they view it as a personal attack, which is like the exact wrong thing to do. I mean, if you're going to really properly manage your investments, you should be challenged, right, to see if there's any holes in whatever investment thesis you have. And I also think there's another interesting component of social media and FinTwit in general, which is that, like, you can be bullish and bearish at the same time. But people don't seem to understand chronology, which is really remarkable. And I think part of that has to do with algorithms, right, because the algorithm will push things which had high engagement, which could have been several days ago or weeks ago. So that's what people see. As opposed to if you're doing something chronologically, seeing latest tweets or latest content to see the evolution of a thought process. Um, but, you know, it's like I've been on this kind of melt up kick, you know, since the first week of January. So far, I think I've been right uh, that the conditions are there. And then I say, but I still be, believe a credit event is out there. And then people say, well, well, you know, look at how bad things are. How can we be melting up? Right. That's the credit event. Right. So. I. I I think it's challenging for people to really get true knowledge from platforms like Twitter when it comes to investing, because it's all short-termism, it's all mistaken narratives, um, and it's a lot of vitriol that really doesn't help anybody advance. 
Yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned the melt up in the credit event, and I want to get to that in a second, but I kind of want to stay on, on this, uh, the, on the Twitter and kind of like the replies back and forth, because I think, you know, I think you're right there, right. Where a lot of people maybe, you know, you, you're giving a contrarian a view, they take it more as like a personal attack or, you know, there's so few characters, you know, it's kind of hard to really just dive really deep into, you know, maybe your strategy or a lot of things uh, behind it. So it's all, obviously all very short form and there's not, you know, maybe a, a big dive into your actual strategy or anything like that. So it kind of resorts like back and forth to a little, little short form insults or whatever it is. And so, you know, with the kind of new emergence of maybe some of the, you know, podcasting or the digital audio space where, you know, you're having people kind of come up and actually, you know, discuss some of these ideas, you know, how has that kind of, I guess, helped you maybe in, in your thesis or anything else or kind of like, you know, discussing back and forth? Have you been able to, you know, maybe network with some people that you never really thought you would um, and kind of discuss those ideas um, or is like, you know, more of, I guess, the, the long forum maybe discussion a little bit better than you think than maybe just, you know, the 240 some characters that you're limited to on Twitter. Yeah. So actually you hit it correctly. And it's actually you and I, you know, somewhat know each other, right. It is, you know, social media can be a great bridge to connect to people. And this is a strange way to say it, but I think every relationship is a lottery ticket. You never know who you can help, who can help you and what the convexity of the payout is going to look like. And I hate to say it in those terms, but that's the reality, right? You, you have to, yeah, you know, like I talk to people sometimes that reach out to me via DM who are literally in college looking for career advice. And, you know, like I'm a busy guy, right? I'm on calls all day long. I'm putting content, researching, doing spaces, all this stuff. Thankfully, I have a rules-based funds so I can do what I'm doing, right, without having to think too much about the allocations. But um, I still spend time talking to those those people that, you know, I, I can't do anything with from a business perspective now. But I don't know, maybe in 20 years, they'll remember that I actually spent time with them and, and tried to give them some encouraging words. And that pays off in some way. You know, I think if you have sort of a mindset of uh, good karma comes back to you, right, then you try to connect and talk to as many people as you can and use social media to be the bridge to a new relationship. Now, for me, I've got the lag report. I've got these spaces. I do all this effort because I'm continuing to try to build my name and my hope is that more and more people then become aware by extension of my strategies. Hopefully the cycle favors my strategies and that's where, you know, I can really kind of monetize the effort. The other part of this is also that the reality is you have to have somewhat of a persona on Twitter, right? Especially on Twitter, less so I think on Instagram, you know, maybe a little bit on YouTube. So if you like it or not, people want to be entertained. Right, and sometimes one person's entertainment is another person's uh, impression of arrogance. Right, so like every time I say, "If you understand this," it's meant to be comedic. Right, it's me actually poking fun at a lot of the kind of Bitcoin maxis because it was a meme from 2017. I have lumbering gold eyes to make fun of the laser eyes from 2020, 2021. But people think that that's me being arrogant. Others realize that's me joking. Right, so the other part of relationship building and using social media to build your brand is you have to recognize that that's going to happen. And try to point it out as much as you can. I've gotten back to my block early, block often mantra. And keep pushing. Um, because especially when you're running a business, you can't worry about what some anonymous account is doing or thinking when you've got real bills to pay and you're the person in the arena fighting you know, the fight alone. 
Yeah, exactly. And and that was very well said. And yeah, I mean, as I've, you know, heard you in spaces and other things like that, I feel like it, it's even more evident that, you know, you're doing this as, you know, a kind of kind of a joke. Everybody wants to have a little bit of fun, right? I mean, if you can't, if you're so serious all the time, it, it really takes away from the message that you're trying to bring across. And, you know, that that's why I like that the few understand this and, and all that kind of stuff that you do on Twitter as well. But um, I want to talk about the melt up. So, um, you know, you talked about the melt up and then the credit event that you think was going to happen. So, you know, the floor is yours here. I'll let you just lay it all out, uh, kind of your thesis on the melt up, like why and where you see kind of the, the credit event coming. So first of all, let, let me preface this by saying as much as with hindsight, you can argue I've been right in terms of, you know, the content of the pivots and the analysis. The reality is in my world that none of that being right mattered last year because in my world, my rules-based funds use treasuries as the safe haven risk-off play. The signal was right for pretty much all my funds to be risk-off the bulk of 2022, but it didn't matter because treasuries acted worse than equities for the first time in history, right? So as you know, right, this is the only domain in life where you can be right and lose money or wrong and make money, right? So that's an important thing I think we should tease out more because it's more than just the analysis. It's the execution on the opportunity set and where you are in the cycle of the opportunity set, which is a really important nuance. So back in April last year, I was very loud saying the environment was worse than 08 and worse than 2020. I said it was hell. And I was seeing that because equities and treasuries were acting the same. The flight to safety trade was failing, which explains a lot of the drawdown in my own funds. Mid-June, I started saying melt-up, actually. It wasn't really in October. Mid-June, I put a tweet out with an image from CNBC that day, it was like June 16 or 17, and the headline from CNBC was markets in turmoil. And I'm telling you, that is unequivocally always, you know, historically a bottom, All right? So the sentiment was so dark. The media was on it. I said melt up back then. Then August 10th, anybody can look it up on the tweets, even though there's a lot of tweets. I said every W needs a V, which is basically a double bottom, right? And then I went back to, you know, the end of the world's at hand. That's why melt's about to take place, October 3rd. There was a brief period in December where I said stocks, I believe, are likely to have an imminent crash. Stocks didn't crash, but yeah, the fifth worst December in history. So I'll still take that as a win. The conditions were there for the accident and it was a bad month. Entering 2023, somebody tweeted me saying, what do you think? You think still we're at crash risk? I said, I'm not clear on that. And then I started seeing lumber pick up. I started seeing utilities start to break down all the leading indicators I'm known for. And I said, okay, we're back to melt up conditions, right? So let's talk about why. Okay. First of all, it's not an opinion. Okay, when I say conditions, it's not about directions, it's about probabilities, right? The conditions that favor an outcome. Historically, not my opinion, when utilities are underperforming the stock market, the conditions favor lower stock market volatility going forward, which is what risk on is. Historically, when lumber is outperforming gold, conditions favor lower stock market volatility, which is what risk on is. So both utilities and lumber, after a prolonged period of being right saying risk off, we're starting to flip saying risk on. Okay. But it was also happening at the same time, there was tremendous bearish sentiment. Now, I can't really test that bearish sentiment, but I can see it qualitatively from the responses on Fintwit. So I saw that my own strategy started flipping from being defensive to offensive. And here we are, and you've already had a pretty sizable move, and everyone seems to be offsides on it. What is remarkable to me is that the bear narrative remains the same, even though it seems like every single point has been at least for now, countered, right? So strong jobs data, uh, Powell has to beat the bulls. Okay, except that every time now, you know, last two times between last week and this week, Powell's spoken, 
markets rallied. Powell actually wants to see the market go higher because you had the seventh worst year for the S&P 500 in history on a real return basis. A lot of damage has already been done. There's another interesting dynamic, though, about this melt-up, which I go back to is behavioral. Last year, 59% of the weeks, the S&P 500 lost money. So you had a very consistent decline in U.S. stocks. The only other time in history you had that number of weeks down as a percentage of the year was 1931. You're not supposed to be able to consistently make money shorting. That's not how markets work, right? You tend to have these, usually it's staircase up, elevator down. Last year was staircase down. And that was part of the whole melt-up thesis October 3rd, that the market conditioned people to be bearish because people were so profitable being bearish week after week after week after week, even though that's the anomaly. So if you condition people a certain way with the sequence of returns, markets do what they do, which is they recondition you. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, the market has definitely been reconditioned, at least for the time being, right? So, I mean, you know, we've seen the market, whether it's, you know, some, some of these growth stocks or even the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, just shooting up in the month of January. So, you, you alluded to like a credit event down the line, um, which will kind of make you, I guess, both bullish for, for the time being and then bearish for when that happens. So, describe a little bit of what you mean by the credit event and, you know, I guess... I don't want to say like, you know, get your crystal ball out and call your shot like Babe Ruth. But if you have some sort of a timing event of when you think that that may happen, feel free to dive into that as well. Okay. So this is, this is where I go back to path matters more than prediction. Okay. So last year was, everyone knows, worst, one of the worst years in history for bonds, but it wasn't a bad year for bonds because of credit risk, because of repricing of default risk. It was a bad year because of duration. So you had something very unusual in the way the bond market behaved. It wasn't, Due to credit spread widening, it was because the entire bond market shifted. Okay. A lot of loans were taken out post-COVID at very low rates, which matured back then in three to four years. So there's a lot of loans on the corporate bond side that are maturing in 2024. This is fact. Most crises are refinancing crises. Right? It's ultimately about a debt wall that gets hit, and you have to roll over that debt. And we all know there's a lot of zombie companies meaning companies that cannot afford higher interest expense that were kept alive because of low rates. So you have this tremendous amount of debt that has to be rolled over next year. On that rollover, default risk should rise, meaning you should see credit spread widen, which is what you see in a recession, which is what you see in a bear market, right? Suddenly investors say, you know what, this very highly levered issuer, I need to get more money because there's a risk that I'm not going to get my money back. That's where the spreads widen. The thing is, if all that rolls over, if a good chunk of that rolls over in 2024, the stock market and the bond market would see it in 2023. So the stock market would typically see these kind of things nine, 12 months out. So it seems very plausible to me that you have this melt-up scenario, you suck in more bulls, the bears capitulate, and then maybe in the sell may go away period because you know sometimes the simplest answer is the right one. That becomes where you might have, you know, the first signs of risk-off conditions, like real risk-off conditions, where you might have credit spreads blow out, you have a repricing of default risk, and then the market starts telling the Fed, you better cool it with higher rates, right? I think that ends up being the sequence. Now, if I'm right on that, selfishly, that's exactly what I need, right? Because all my funds rely on treasuries to be the safe haven, to be the flight to safety trade. So if you get a spread blowout, I think we'll look back on 2022 and 2023 and say they were both terrible years for bonds. 
but just 2022 was duration risk and then 2023 is credit risk. And if that's the case, then Treasury should go back to their historical flight to safety dynamic, which is what failed last year and so badly hit my own strategies. Yeah. And I mean, uh, hey, that's a very well thought out thesis. And I think, you know, I mean, I guess time will tell, right, and see whether or not uh, that actually comes true. But I feel like a, a decent amount of that, uh, you know, is or I mean, I guess the market in a lesser extent is always trying to predict what the Fed is going to do, you know, whether it's like raising interest rates or whatnot. And we, like you said, we've had Jerome Powell kind of come in and just, you know, uh, they're raising the inter interest rates, but it seems like, you know, the uh, they're slowing down and the market's reacting positively each time he's, he speaks. So, you know, how do you view, I guess, just overall generally how the job the Fed is doing? And, you know, what are your, I guess, predictions as far as like raising interest rates goes for the rest of the year? Because he's already kind of pointed out the fact that he thinks that, you know, they're going to continue to raise rates throughout the, the rest of the, this year. And they haven't called for a pivot, but it seems like a lot of FinTwit and the market are almost screaming for a pivot. So I'd, I'd like to hear your viewpoints on all that. This is the problem with the QE3 era, which is, again, where all these distortions took place, where zero interest rate policy cut off left tail risk. Historically, the market likes higher rates because the Fed lags demand. The Fed lags growth. So the narrative that higher rates, until you have spreads widen, is negative. The Fed hiking rates is negative. is just not true historically if you go before 2013. Right? Everyone's perception of low rates are good for the stock market. Their perception is based on that, based on an anomaly of Fed policy when we didn't need to have zero interest rate policy. We weren't in crisis post-2013. We didn't need QE3. We weren't in a crisis post-2013. So... You know, people can be screaming all they want about the stock market will go up when the Fed uh, pivots. Again, I go back to that's not true. You can look historically whenever the Fed funds rate turns from positive to negative and you have a uh, cutting cycle. That's when the bulk of the drawdown for stocks tends to happen. So, you know, I, I do believe we're in this normalization period where we're getting back to the way markets used to be and how they used to work before. QE3, I'm much more used to that because that's where most of my testing is based off of. Most people on FinTwit who have only been trading for the last decade or so, that's their perception of the way the markets work, but history says it's not. And, uh, you know, on that, right, I mean, we've, we've seen low to interest rates for a decade plus. Um, obviously, you know, the Fed's raising now at, at a historically know, fast rate and everything like that. But, you know, you're kind of reversion to, to how, uh, you know, markets quote unquote normally are right uh, outside of this anomaly of this past decade leads me to the question, like, you know, you're seeing massive amounts of volatility, right? We've seen obviously the GME, the AMC, and now it seems like the Bed Bath & Beyond kind of craze where we're seeing stocks go up, you know, 120% or over 100% in a single day. You know, do you think uh, maybe the Fed kind of re reverting back towards, know, uh, not maybe an, a zero interest rate policy will kind of eliminate that or kind of move that farther away from, you know, the craziness and the volatility that we're seeing in the market? I mean, every um, every earthquake has, you know, or most earthquakes have aftershocks, right? So you can call it an echo bubble if you want, right? Um, so I don't, I think what we've seen in some of these meme stocks going vertical, um, actually kind of makes sense because that's what markets again do. I have to say I'm also not convinced it's retail. I know a lot of people say that, but a lot of studies would suggest that day trading is at multi-year lows. People will reference zero DTE options. 
I'm sorry, but most of that volume is not retail. Uh, the people that are in the know say that's primarily institutions that are doing zero DTE, not individuals, not retail. So yeah, I don't know. It's not clear to me. I always go back to, um, and it's not a, it's not a critique on retail. It's a critique around uneducated speculation. Typically it's a top when the person who knows nothing about markets is simply making a decision based on the last day's performance on a stock. We're not there yet on the advance, right? We're actually there on the bearish side as a contrarian trade because everyone thinks things will keep going lower again because they're conditioned. Um, so I, I, I think it's interesting to see. I think it's somewhat to be expected. I'm not convinced that that means things have to turn around tomorrow to smack the, the, uh, the speculative fervor that we're starting to see come back in here. Yeah, and I and man, I, I kind of agree with you there too. I, I think like maybe that it might be, you know, a microcosm of, you know, just what is actually going on in the market and everything like that as well. But, um, you know, you're doing a few spaces maybe on a little bit of a geopolitical lens. So, you know, when it comes to the macro and, you know, you're seeing obviously what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and some of these other, you know, obviously geopolitics is, is one separate issue, but it seems like it kind of affects the global economy, especially as, you know, everything is kind of connected right now. Um, so how do you kind of view some of these events going on? Obviously, do you, do you kind of, uh, you know, take some weight into what's going on in China or, or some of these other things? Or are you more so just, you know, I know obviously you have your rules-based ETF, but when you're doing your full-on macro analysis, you know, how much weight do you uh, pay attention to to what everybody else is kind of doing aside from just the Fed. It's really challenging, right? Because it's like even if you have a perfect crystal ball around Russia going into Ukraine and all these sanctions, you wouldn't have thought the ruble would have done what it did, right? It's like one thing is to say that something happens, another thing is to identify the reaction by the market, which could be totally different from what everybody thinks. So I don't know if you can necessarily kind of think through it too much. I mean, you have to, uh, you know. Always being mindful of that, but this is a game of trying to anticipate the anticipation of others, right? It's not necessarily about an easy cause and effect. So Russia goes into Ukraine, so this is what has to happen. You got to figure out the path. You got to figure out what other people are thinking. You got to figure out where the payout is highest, you know, relative to where people are betting. So again, I think it's interesting. Um, and I always go back to the point: a lot of the macro talk that you see on Twitter, sure, it's interesting, but can you actually do anything with it? Uh, I'm not so convinced. Yeah, it's like, it's always comes leads me back to the to question is like how all right so based on the, this macro information how can I make money or how can I you know position myself to avoid risk or are there what do I do with it right right yeah where I think there's very few conversations kind of around that it's more so like hey the, this is just really happening right so um, it is kind of a, an interesting topic and, and you know a lot of people are kind of keeping their eyes close to this right now but. Um, you know, with this kind of situation, the melt up and no matter how the market conditions are kind of, you know, maybe up or down, it seems like there's always kind of certain sectors or certain areas that are going to prosper, even if the overall economy are kind of in a recession or something else. So is there any few markets that are sectors that you're kind of looking at that you think, you know, based on kind of, you know, the, the situation that we're in, um, you know, just kind of the overall United States economy that certain sectors are primed for prosper and, and growth uh, if there is a recession? Okay, so there's there's multiple time frames there. So one is, you know, clearly we're seeing tech is what's working. I mean, after massive, massive weakness, you're starting to see some movement back into the growth trade for a short-term period. Um, I think the commodity trade is probably there for a while. I think the emerging market trade is there for a while. 
Um, and I say that again because the removal of QE levels the playing field between U.S. markets and everything else. You don't have the left tail risk. So, yeah, I think those areas probably from a multi-year perspective are likely to work. If you're going to say which sector do you want to allocate to the most, you know, I always go back to the simplest answer is probably the right one. Probably healthcare. Okay, because no matter what, every single day that goes by, more and more people need healthcare services, more and more people are aging, right? And it's not about, you know, pharmaceuticals and drugs and vaccines. It's just about needing to take care of one's physical state. And <laughs> listen, inflation is stressful as hell. I'm pretty sure stress is the number one killer for a lot of people. So, you know, I, I, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but the reality is, as a society, Things are not going to get easier. So uh, all of us are physically being taxed more, which, oddly enough, your best hedge against that is probably the healthcare sector. Yeah, and I, and I couldn't uh, agree with you more there. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's getting physically taxing and we're kind of seeing, you know, which is interesting, though, that we're seeing this melt up amongst, you know, kind of the, the inflationary times that we're seeing. Right. So I kind of want to dive into a little bit about the consumer and kind of some of the things that maybe you're looking at there. Right. Because we're seeing obviously the CPI prints are, are what's grabbing all the headlines. But, you know, you're seeing, you know, gasoline and other items up. Well, double digit percentage wise in, uh, you know, year over year calculations and everything like that. So, you know, the consumer and kind of the, the recent jobs report that came out this uh, this past week seemed to be be pretty strong, um, you know, and, you know, you even had Jerome Powell said that it was stronger than than expected. So, you know, I kind of how do you view the consumer, whether it's jobs or everything else kind of going forward as the Fed is continuing to raise interest rates and obviously, you know, inflation is kind of still spiking up. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because if you look at discretionary stocks against staple stocks, you've had pretty big outperformance, uh, just like home builder stocks have had outperformance, which is all positive for the consumer, right? Because it's about housing, credit creation. Um, I don't know why people think the strong jobs data is inflationary. And I know that sounds really weird to say, but it's like, what if it's based on real growth? So you can envision a scenario where more people are getting hired, more people enter the workforce, which means there's more competition amongst labor, which means wage growth and wage negotiating bargaining power lessens because there's more people around to get hired and people need to pay off their bills. And maybe all of the stimulus that people accumulated and you know used to kind of live off of for the last year and a half, maybe that's now gone. So we got to a point where it's like now every piece of news is perceived as inflationary. It may not be. There's inflation, then there's real growth. Maybe it's real growth. And that could be why the stock market is doing what it's doing, because it's actually interpreting that not necessarily as inflationary, but more growth as opposed to just a function of, you know, higher prices to come. Do you think that the perception around the jobs data being kind of an inflationary event is almost because of what Powell has been saying and everybody's kind of hanging on to whatever, you know, every word that he says in, in all of his, his meetings? Yeah, it goes back to conditioning, right? That's, he kept on saying that all throughout last year and now he's basically saying yeah if it's strong it probably means higher rates but again that's not necessarily a bad thing it's just these narratives are just not true all you need to do is look at history before 2012. so um look I, i've made this point many times before bear markets make fools of bulls and bears bear markets make fools of bulls and bears this is what volatility does it makes everybody look foolish it makes everybody look wrong at some point I think we're in the stage where the bears are being made to be fools now. 
Okay, because the market is telling you that a lot of things have been discounted. A lot of the narratives are being countered. That doesn't mean the bear market's over. This is what markets do. They they humble everybody at different times, right? So that's what I'm saying. I think there's still a credit event out there. But for now, the conditions are there for the melt-up. And irrespective of what Powell says, irrespective of what anybody says, the bond market's already stabilized. All you needed to do was to have the long end of the curve stabilize for markets to be comfortable, right, in rallying, for stocks to rally. Stabilization means you can actually model things out. If you don't know where interest rates are on the long end, if you're doing an NPV calculation, that's when activity stops. But if you have some degree of stability, it creates confidence. Confidence is all you need for stocks to go higher, not what Powell says. Yeah, but, it, you know, it seems like whatever Powell says, you know, it's still it's still moving the market. But I agree with you there. Right. It's, it's more confidence in the market and people kind of jumping towards other things and, and things like that. But you, you mentioned, you know, bears or bear markets make everybody look kind of kind of dumb and foolish, which I think is super interesting because, you know, I think the opposite we just saw in 2020 and, and kind of the, the bull market that was a little bit before then, before obviously the COVID crash and everything like that, where bull markets make everybody look kind of like a genius where it's like you could throw money, you could roll a dice or, you know, pick three random letters or four random letters and that stock's going to go up that day. And, uh, you know, we, we even see that kind of like all over FinTwit and other things like that. So, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing, I guess, the reversion back, right, where, where the market's kind of normalizing. And, you know, you're seeing, you know, people like yourself or others who are who have worked in this industry for quite some time or have been educated in this industry kind of going back to, you know, what what really got them to where they are. So, you know, as as we're kind of getting to, towards this, you know, you said you've seen day trading kind of go down and other things like that. Do you kind of see maybe, I guess, some fear ahead for for the average retail investor? Because it seemed like a lot of you know retail investors kind of got in during this COVID crash and, you know, this COVID time as everybody's kind of locked up. So, you know, do you think that there's going to be maybe, I guess, a reversion back towards, you know, everybody just kind of being a little bit more timid before investing in the stock market? Well, I think the fear is that you're going to see is the fear of missing out. It's going to be FOMO. It always is, right? It's people chasing, not understanding that it's about buy low, not buy high, sell higher. Buy high, sell higher works at a point, but most returns come at the turn, not in the middle, which means you need to have a leap of faith in any investment, any approach, any strategy. It's unfortunate because I think the effect of retail and the media's obsession with retail is actually a big disservice to retail money. It's like I encourage everybody to be involved in markets, but you got to spend the time learning and not be on FinTwit where there's a lot of people who respectfully go on these Twitter spaces and they're viewed as experts. And I can tell you as somebody who, listen, you, you can, you can, you can poke fun at the CFA charter. It's a very serious endeavor. You can poke fun at being a finance degree, very serious endeavor. I mean, I spent my life in this industry. There are things I hear that are blatantly wrong, but people latch onto it. And it's unfortunate because retail just, they, you know, that audience does gravitate towards the soothsayer on the hill. Most of these soothsayers are anonymous. Right. So you don't even know if they have skin in the game. Um, so it's unfortunate. I say it's unfortunate because I think what's happening is that people are learning the wrong lessons and it caused them to then, you know, get hurt on the way down and then on the way up, just as things are about to turn down. 
you have to think differently about investing, and that means you have to have the right foundation. You can't have the right foundation, I would argue, only listening to podcasts, only listening to somebody on a Twitter space. You've got to do what everybody else does, study. you got to put the time and effort in. So what kind of tools, I guess, would you say are, are best for studying as, you know, that's kind of been the, the new source of information, right? A lot of people are kind of going towards whether it's Twitter spaces like yourselves or, or podcasts like mine or, you know, other places. They're going to these kind of avenues. And this is kind of the first first stop for them, right, is, is they go to these places to, to, you know, learn a little bit more about the markets and kind of figure things out. Um, you know, obviously, there's some of the classic books out there, like, you know, uh, value investing and other principles like that, um, that that have been written ages ago, and kind of, you know, are, those principles still hold true. So, you know, as somebody who's is maybe trying to you know, convince somebody else to get in the markets, especially during this bear time, where it's like, hey, you know, everybody says buy low, sell high. But when it comes to actual ex- execution, few actually do it. So, um, you know, in order to kind of start educating themselves, where would you kind of point somebody that's maybe trying to get into it? This is all about behavior. This is a game purely about behavior. I am a huge fan of behavioral finance. Huge, huge fan. I've read a lot of the original source material from Tversky and Kahneman. James Montier has a lot of great work when it comes to behavioral finance. I've read a lot of psychology studies, right? They have nothing to do with investing in the actual research, but are unequivocally applicable to the stock market. So I think behavioral finance is important. And then, you know, kind of my field, which is intermarket analysis, which is understanding the interplay of asset classes to each other rather than just, you know, here's a moving average, here's support, here's resistance. It's really understanding how market dynamics work. And I do also think that everybody should learn how to backtest. And I don't mean backtest like, you know, here's one asset class and here's another asset class. That one did better. No, I mean, how do you actually create signals that have rules around the strategy to know what works and what doesn't? There is so much bullshit on Twitter that I know if you were to backtest it has zero predictive power. But people like and retweet this stuff as if it tells you anything about what's to come. That's, that's It's ridiculous. It, it's a disservice to yourself if you don't actually view anything and everything that you see with skepticism, which means look to the left of the equal sign, test it, see if there's actual validity. The reality is very few things really have predictive power in markets. Very, very few things, right? But you wouldn't know that seeing social media. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like everybody thinks that they can predict the future. And then, you know, once they don't, the the, the deleted tweets come and, and everything else like that. Right. So, I mean, it is a tough environment, especially right now. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of various factors and other things kind of going on and a lot of noise in the market. So, you know, what's some of the things that you use to kind of, you know, filter through the noise? I know you say you have like kind of a rules based approach. But, you know, kind of how did you develop that rules-based approach? And, you know, how how difficult is it to kind of, I guess, stick to that? Maybe even when, you know, there's, uh, you know, like certain periods of time when that, that strategy isn't doing well. Well, in my case, it's easy to stick to it because I have to. Because it's my prospectus, right? So that's kind of the joke about last year. People were like, oh, you should have seen this coming with your funds with treasuries. Okay, first of all, that's not true. Treasuries started their drawdown in July of 2020, way before the Fed started hiking rates. Plenty of times where the Fed hiked rate and rates on long duration treasuries counter equity volatility. But you know, in my case, I have to stick to it because that's what the prospectus is. That's what I designed the funds to do. I never designed you know, my funds to, to do well in something that never happened before in history. Why would I? If it's something that's a, a, an outlier, 
it's only going to work once in that outlier, right? So you create something that works on average. Um, I think for other people, though, the key thing is spend the time researching market anomalies. Look at white papers, right? That study is that's written by academics. I know a lot of people will will say academics don't know what they're talking about when it comes to markets. No, that's not true. It's just data analysis, right? So in my case, all of my strategies are based on the same premise that there are leading indicators to volatility conditions changing. And the leading indicators all have one thing in common. They tell you about demand for money changing. Utilities are the most bond-like sector of the stock market. They tell you about interest rates. Lumber to gold is about housing. tells you about interest rates. Treasuries are interest rates. The moving average tells you about interest rates because most of the time, if you're below moving average, you're in a recession. Right? Even the VIX tells you about interest rates because if the VIX is too high, you need liquidity, lower rates. Right? So, so it's like, Everything at the end of the day is actually based on a very simple concept, just getting there in different ways, which is are the leading indicators saying that liquidity is coming out and are interest rates reflecting that? If you can get to that answer, that gets you like 50 to 60% of why markets do what they do. And honestly, from a strategy development perspective, that's more than enough. Most people try to find the perfect approach. They overlay thousands of variables. They look at all these indicators. It's not that hard. And if you do that, you actually way overcomplicate your approach, it ends up being more fragile. So, um, but again, you don't know that. You don't know what works and what doesn't unless you test things out, right? So going back to your, your question, read books, read what works, read what doesn't, verify it yourself, then come up with a strategy that works for you and and view Twitter and FinTwit more as a, as a contrarian indicator to maybe validate a view rather than a way of confirming your own. Yeah, and that, that's a fair point there, right? Because I mean, you know, you, you tweeted it out the other day that when when you tweet something out and, and there's a basically the response is just insults, it seems like all right, then then you're on the right track, right? Every so, time it happens. I wish I could make an ETF around that. It would have a perfect track record. It is remarkable. Yeah, it's a, exactly that, right? But I mean that that's what you what you were saying earlier. It almost seems like a personal attack on them, or that's how how they're taking it, or how it's perceived. Unfortunately, but um, you know, as we're kind of going through the rest of this year, we've got you know the the melt up happening and the potential of the credit you know uh, the credit uh, situation in twenty twenty four. As you know, you kind of laid out earlier in the in this uh, in this discussion. But on that note, you know, I'll ask you one last question as, as my dog is getting a little excited back here and squeaking his toy. Um, what? How do you view the rest of the year? I mean, with with the Fed keeping the interest rates maybe 25 basis points at, at you know, the, the next few meetings or so, and we're kind of seeing this melt up. Do you see 2023 kind of reaching a new all-time high, maybe in the S&P 500 and some of these other, other markets uh, or, you know, other indexes and other things like that? Um, and... Uh, you know, if so, even amongst, you know, kind of this uh, recessionary time. And if so, do you kind of see that, I guess, widening maybe the the uh, wealth gap that we've had in the United States, whether it's, uh, you know, those that actually have assets and, and those that don't, unfortunately. Could the S&P make new highs in nominal terms? Yes. But that's nominal. I'm not so sure about real, right? Uh, meaning after inflation. I think we're in an era where it's not just about the S&P anymore. So what that means is I suspect small caps will get much more momentum. Emerging markets will get much more momentum independent of a credit event. There's kind of a longer secular argument there. Um, markets surprise people. Look, we're in a pre-election year. Historically, pre-election years are the, the, the best year in the presidential cycle. It's not to say you can't have a nasty bear market continue. But again, it's like how much more damage you need. You had the, 
The bear market started February 2021. There's nothing new anymore that bears can argue. So, you know, you have to start asking yourself, could it be possible that it could be a very strong year? Yes. But again, I go back to, I think there's a credit of it out there. You can still close positive for the year. And I always go back to 1987 was a pre-election year. The Dow was up 30% and the Black Monday crash happened. And the Dow still closed up 2% in 1987. That's not to say I think you're going to have something exactly like that. But history would show that you can have a positive year, but a very nasty volatile one. I gotcha. And that, that was great. And I appreciate your time and you coming on the podcast and kind of laying out your thesis and talking a little bit to the tw- Twitter trolls out there. But, you know, for those who don't know you or haven't found you on Twitter, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and what you got going on? Yeah, I appreciate it. So at Lee Lagaport is my handle on Twitter. Please also follow me on Instagram. I'm trying to focus more on that. And you too. Everybody also follow Brandon, uh, who's always a, a great host and, and a good guy in general. Um, and uh, leadlagreport.com. Uh, I put a lot of research, but a lot of effort into what I do. Some people say I'm shilling my research. I'm simply giving people access to a deeper thought. Uh, and I believe like everything else, my time is valuable and that should be valued. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, you, you do a lot of great stuff. I think, uh, you know, this is coming out. Uh, we're, we're recording this on the 7th, so on Tuesday, but it's, uh, it's going to come out on the 13th. I think you're doing like 15 hours maybe of spaces this week so yeah I, uh and that, that's and that's why i'm gonna have to hop off soon because i got another one coming up right now yeah exactly so i mean you're, you're very generous with your time and very open with everything so i'll link everything in the show notes and in the comments below so be sure to check it out and uh let's hop into his spaces and listen to his podcast as well so michael thank you so much for your time and uh we'll have to have you back on at some point in the future to to yell at the bears or maybe right before the the potential credit event or something like that if you understand this There we go. Awesome way to end it.